welcome to the next installment of the SUS News Podcast Series, where we interview newsmakers and discuss the news and applications relevant to the global unmanned technologies community. I'm your program host, Patrick Egan, and at this time, as we always do, we say hello and a big warm Texas welcome to our co-host, Mr. Gene Robinson. How are you, sir? Gene Robinson here and ready to talk about everything drone. Good. So uh, still not warming up in Texas or what? You know, it is, and we're we're flying some of those big birds that we got to talk about here the last couple of weeks. And uh, the guys from the frozen north, Wisconsin, stuff like that, they're loving the 70-degree weather out here, bluebird skies, you know, being able to fly the drones anywhere they need to fly them. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty nice. Um, yes, big and bright, something like that. Let's get yep. to uh, you know anything anything else new with you, yeah, the, the uh, professor Robinson. Uh, how's that coming? <laughs> Actually, uh, yeah, we're going to be really pushing this program here. the The drone program is is really starting to no pun intended take off now that COVID has kind of calmed down a little bit. And um, you know, there's uh, some big plans in the works. I, I hope to be able to talk about some of those in the very near future. And uh, it is going to cover soup to nuts on drones and laws and regulations and software. It's uh, some pretty exciting times, I think, for for the at least the Central Texas drone area. Working here with the uh, Austin Community College people, they they really have bought in and they they see it as a future. And and uh, I think we're going to do some good things here. Well, that's good. All right. Well, we have a. a uh... Another. This is a, uh, another podcast in the uh, the drones are proposal series, and we got a lot to talk about. Last time we ran long because we had so much to talk about. So I think before we, uh, yeah, but it was good. I mean, you know, like I said, these things they start heating up about fifteen minutes in, and it gets white hot and goes. So without further ado, I think we'll bring on our guest, Mr. James Grimsley. He's the executive director for the Advanced Technology Initiative with the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma and an Oklahoma Transportation Commissioner, which is a, a lot of stuff. Hey, James, how's it going? Great. How are you guys doing? Great. Well, you heard, uh, G- Gene's doing great down there at 70 degrees. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's well, the, the cold, doing good. Cold weather's coming your way, Gene. Cold weather's coming your oh, way. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Appreciate it, James. <laughs> we get it first. Sending so. it on down there. Misery loves company. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, before we, you know, we dive into this, you know, we have a a lot to talk about, James, we do. And not just you and the drones are, but I I also want to talk about uh, what I would call the the Oklahoma miracle and and how that transpired. But before we do that, um, possibly you could uh, do us a favor for the benefit of the audience and myself. could you give us a, a, a brief bio, you know, the high points? I know you have a long career, so you know, it's hard for me to, sure. to, to give people bios because, <laughs> you know, it takes well. And uh, so, you know, sure. and how you came to work with uh, unmanned aircraft systems. Sure. Well, uh, I uh, grew up in the heart of the Choctaw Nation in a little uh, town called Atoka, which is almost right in the middle of the Choctaw Nation in southeastern Oklahoma, very rural impoverished area, and I grew up in a pretty exciting times because got to grow up as a little kid watching the Apollo missions on our black and white television, you know, at the house, and my young mom, 
just knew that I loved that. And she knew that if anything NASA showed up on the air, she would go find me wherever I was. I'd be out in the field somewhere playing with all my friends. She'd already have a sandwich ready for me to sit in front of the television watching NASA. So, you know, I had a great childhood growing up here uh, in southeastern Oklahoma. And uh, just stuff like the Apollo missions and stuff really sparked my interest. I, I remember thinking about I wanted to be like the guys that made that happen. The people that made all that happen seemed pretty cool to me. And that's, that's what really – got me interested in engineering. So I went off uh, to college, was the first uh, person in my family to you know, go to college, get a degree. I paid my own way. It was back. I didn't have a college fund or anything, so I had to work through college, but it was a great experience. And I got my bachelor's degree in aerospace engineering, then went on to graduate work in mechanical. Um, and it was a, kind of a neat time. This was right at the end of the uh, Reagan uh, era. And uh, so I immediately after college, went to work for the Air Force as a civilian engineer and got to work on some of the uh, programs, uh, cruise missile programs, like the advanced cruise missile, things like that, that had been developed during that time. And also was exposed to uh, another program called AFMIS, which was the mission planning system. And in college, uh, a lot of us were uh, kind of surrounded by a project at the University of Oklahoma back in the 80s called the Tornado Chaser, where we attempted to build a, a remote-controlled uh, aircraft that what we were trying to do is get an instrument package as close to a tornado as we could. And so there was some, I believe at the time, NSF funding and stuff. And interestingly enough, a lot of the people that had some tie or, or association with that went on to, to become, you know, people who pretty prominent in the drone industry uh, uh, Dr. Jamie Jacob at Oklahoma State University, uh, Dr. Brian Argro was a graduate student at the time when we were all undergraduates. And so a lot of us ended up in this this industry by accident. But I started out working cruise missiles, uh, left as a civilian in the Air Force, went to work as a contractor, and kept coming back to some form of unmanned aircraft over my whole career. And then uh, eventually started doing a lot of work for AFRL in the research labs on um, basically what at the time they were calling a microwear vehicles. And we were coming up with new concepts, and I was so doing a lot of consulting on my own, contracting on my own. Ended up at the University of Oklahoma for about seven years as an associate VP for research. And while there, we really kind of ramped up a lot of the stuff we were doing for weather research using small UAS and actually developed one of the first campus policies for uh, small UAS in, in the country. We were the first non-military COA holder uh, at the time in the state of Oklahoma, and so we did a lot of work there. Um, the Choctaw Nation came to me. I grew up in the middle of the Choctaw Nation, and they came to me with a very simple proposition. They had bought a very large tract of property around uh, 44,000 acres. It's 25 miles long, not far from where my family pretty much were all raised and grew up, so I knew the area very well. And they came to me while I was at the university, and with a very simple proposition, they said, we want to do something in aviation, and we would like to figure out how to make this property useful. Um, so at the time, the Choctaw Nation had no really involvement. Other than they did have a defense contract company that they owned, but not a whole lot of involvement in aviation, really, and really had no brand recognition or name recognition in the field. And as I started looking at what they had, I realized that they were onto something because they, as a tribe, they have sovereign jurisdiction over the surface. Uh, they have unique things that they can do that are really different than really states and local governments and stuff. And as we started looking at it and talking to friends in NASA and also at the time the Office of Science and Technology Policy at the White House, they were very intrigued with it. So I did a series of reports for the tribe, looked at kind of the regulatory landscape and environment, looked at really where I thought the industry was going, you know, predicting out decade, two decades in the future, what we thought was going to be happening. And then they wanted me to synthesize, how can they get at the table? How could they actually become involved in this industry? And so as I finished those reports up for the tribe, uh, the IPP, the Integration Pilot Program solicitation came out, which uh, when we looked at the requirements of it, 
it was a piece of cake. It was very easy for us to write a proposal because we had just literally finished doing all of the things it was asking for, but in a very in-depth way. So we did submit a proposal. Uh, we were successful. The only tribal government selected as a lead participant, and it was a little historic because it's really the first time a tribal government's been selected for sort of a transportation-related pilot program. So uh, we did uh, win as an IPP. We were uh, also part of the BEYOND, so the eight of the IPP lead participants did roll into the BEYOND program where we're focused on BV loss operations and uh, also things like, you know, deliveries, kind of the things that where it looks like there's going to be more of an application, you know, in the future for BV loss operations. So it's been a, a fun ride. I, the Choctaw Nation uh, did make me the proverbial offer I couldn't refuse. So I would have never had believed that I would return back to my roots in southeastern Oklahoma where I'd played and hunted and fished and everything else and be involved with advanced aviation and kind of the, the future where things are going. So it's been a great time. Um, the tribe is really doing well. We were the first tribal government recognized as a public aircraft operator, which was a, a significant kind of milestone for us. Um, we've also expanded the, uh, the work we're doing across the board. We, we have a great relationship with uh, the F.A. Mike Monroney Center. We have a, a very broad kind of MOU with them that we're doing a lot of uh, interaction with the different uh, research organizations there. Uh, we have a, a great group of industry clients we work with, and that's everything from the VTOL companies that are developing passenger carrying systems to, to people who are looking at enterprise applications, trying to do things. And then um, also just a, a lot of our local users, emergency management, other, of those types of organizations. So it's been a, a very fun and rewarding experience, and uh, it's starting to have a significant impact on the, the Choctaw Nation. So I'll stop. Yes. So. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, you, you covered a lot of real estate. It's uh, one of those things like, you know, you, you talked about the milestones and, uh, you know, as you were rattling off all of the, the milestones you you, uh, you you've hit, you know, right? I, I'm thinking about all of the trials and tribulations. Let's say the, uh, the currents under the surface that I'm sure right. you had to go through to make all that happen. The, oh, yeah. the way that you laid yeah. that out, it was like, oh, you know, I just got up. One day had a cup of coffee and it all worked out, which we know. No, no there was a lot true. more to it. <laughs> well, well yeah. as you know, you and I, we, we've known each other for years, and, and uh, I, I think we first met, uh, we, uh, we had AUVSI chapters. You know, as, as part of the stuff I started doing back in Oklahoma, I created a, a, non, a not-for-profit advocacy group back around 2000, I think it was 2008, and we call it the Unmanned Systems Alliance of Oklahoma. And we, we existed independently of any other organization for two or three years, did very well. Started thinking about how we pull assets together, how do we get into this industry in the future. Um, we turned that into an AUVSI chapter in 2011. Now, ultimately, I sort of regretted that. We lost our autonomy uh, by doing that. And, and eventually, I, I just separated from AUVSI. I just didn't like the way things were going with advocacy and things like that. But but I've been involved in that side. It, this has been it's been a very interesting path getting to where we're at in this industry today, uh, especially over the past probably 20 years or so. Uh, you know, a lot of us originally got into this industry. We, we didn't get into it because we were we bought into hype or anything. Early on, a lot of us were just intrigued with the you know the ability and what we could do. We were just really intrigued with the technology and and uh, almost the geek side of me just really loved what was going on on the technical side. Um, but sort of what happened for a while, we sort of the industry sort of was um, uh, is overtaken by hype that didn't help us. And, and as we all know, we ended up fighting a lot of battles that I thought were you know were really unnecessarily early on, and really had some problems with public perception that in reality was 
a lot of that was unnecessary, I think, but it still was a reality. We yes. deal with. But it's, it's been a very difficult, yeah, it's, it hasn't been all uh, sprinkles and rainbows for sure. It's been uh, <laughs> some difficult paths over the past <laughs> couple of decades. Yeah, and, and Gene, you know, it was all peaches and cream for you, right? Of course it was. I mean, I didn't have any issues. I don't know what you're talking about, James. Um, gosh. <laughs> you know, it it's like interesting a walk that, in the park. Uh, Yeah, it's interesting <laughs> to me talking about the Choctaw Nation, but uh, I was involved very early on with uh, the Osage Nation. Uh, mm-hmm. Gosh, it was like 2018. And uh, mm-hmm. now they've come up with their innovation zone, the Skyway 36. As a matter of fact, I wrote a roadmap for them back in mm-hmm. 2018. My contact there was Chief Redcorn. And mm-hmm. uh, we were we were really getting pretty excited about that situation there. Do you have any contact with them as far as um, that, that development that they're doing there? Search state channels. Yeah, we, uh, in fact, they, they hosted me up there two, three years ago. They originally contacted me early on. Uh, when the IPP came out and I, I said, well, I really can't talk right now under non-disclosure and kind of, you know, everything with the Choctaw Nation. So I promised them, I said, I'll tell you what, I can come visit when we submit proposals, then I, it'd be probably safe for me to come visit you. So right. while, while the IPP proposals were all being reviewed kind of in the hopper, I went up and spent a day with uh, assistant chief Redcorn and uh, he, he toured me around and, um, you know, there, there's a little bit different. The, the two tribes are a little bit different. Uh, the Choctaw Nation, uh, has about 11,000 square mile reservation southeastern Oklahoma. So it was the first tribe that came across uh, with, the, you know, the Trail of Tears for relocation. But we really right. don't have any large urban centers. Uh, we border the North Texas Dallas metroplex area, but, you know, the two biggest towns within um, the Choctaw Nation are maybe 20,000 people or so, whereas the Osage Nation borders Tulsa. So they're right on the edge of a, a uh, major metropolitan area. So it's a little bit, you know, there's kind of different um, – make up of sort of the, the reservation properties and stuff. Um, but yeah, I do interact with them. Uh, Oklahoma does have a very strong aerospace industry and we all end up at, at some level all working together, collaborating in things either at the state level or just at industry associations, things like that. So, so yeah, um, I did want to get into that too. Uh, the, the, the Oklahoma miracle, as I like to call it, but I did want to, I want to mm-hmm. flash back to the, so the first time we met, was that the, uh, the AVSI pres- chapter president's meeting where I, yeah, I, yeah, you, I you, I, a little uh, bit yeah, we, of a yep. <laughs> conflagration <laughs> at the meeting. Well, the problem was was uh, you never would speak up, Patrick, and we never knew what you were thinking. We always we, we could never figure out what exactly. Patrick was thinking because he would never speak up. He stood quiet. That was the problem. No, but yeah, yeah, uh, like a wall blower. <laughs> but it was it was a frustrating time. And if you remember those days, I, I remember in college when if you were flying any sort of unmanned remote controlled aircraft, you were totally ignored. I mean, FA didn't care if, if we picked up the the phone and call the tower if they said we're getting ready to fly they said why are you bothering us you know you, you're flying a toy you know it was just it was we were totally no pun intended under the radar ignored that changed in the 2000s when when people you know the fa kind of had a change of position said well you're gonna need coas and you know and stuff I, I just remember the early days trying to get coas and trying to reconcile with like part 91 and stuff and and how crazy it was i, I remember uh colleagues that were getting COAs and trying to figure out how they were going to put their flight manual on their three pound system, you know, their operations manual. And one come up with the idea that they would just put it on a zip drive, a USB zip drive and tape it to the side and it would meet the regulations, which it did because it was on board. Yep. 
Uh, it, had, yep. it was absolutely no use on board, but it was on board. And you know, as, as all of us were looking at that, trying to reconcile, you know, because I'd spent a long time in manned aviation and, and crewed aviation, as we were trying to reconcile things moving forward, I remember uh, I, I was not on the Part 107 arc or anything, but I just remember in my head trying to reconcile, how are we going to solve this, 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 you know, things like 119, how are we going to do things like minimum safe altitudes and stuff? And I was trying to figure out how we're going to reconcile all that. And 107 you know, came out a little differently than I expected, really, on it. So. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It came out. And that was a gift as far as I was concerned. And, you know, all those yep. things that you talked about, those nightmares have kind of finally started subsiding for me. So it's good. Right. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was definitely I still have time, so back in the day. <laughs> yeah, no, it was. And uh, I still do, yes. Uh, and, and the reason I have nightmares is that, you know, I've kind of circled back into the uh, SBIR, STTR um, right. realm and talking to people in the DOD on, you know, certain groups of warfighters, blah, blah, blah. Um, we, we have a real capabilities gap, you know, um, right. and right. a capabilities gap that people say, you know, they want, let's say, the – that certain Chinese company, you know, well, we want those capabilities at those price points, and it's like, <laughs> ain't happening, man. And and there's a whole uh, host of reasons for those, and and that's one of the uh, reasons that I still have nightmares about this this drone thing. Uh, and and people talk about, it. you know, you talked about it early on, the the space right. thing. And I was right. a kid. I was the same deal. I was pretty young. I didn't know what it all meant, but I'm like, man, this is cool. Gene, I'm sure right. uh, the same because he's kind of a geek. But the thing is, it's like, you know, hey, man, we, we put people on the moon and stuff, you know, and brought them back right. here. Right. Uh, right. You know, we have spacecraft that are like, well, you know, billion miles from Earth. And so I know that we can, we can do this integration job. It's just a matter of uh, will. And, and right. there have been uh, a few mistakes. So, uh, you know, and there's been a lot of – there has been a lot of work. There's been a lot of input from people like yourself and Gene. And, and I remember what you're talking about. Same deal. I'd call the tower. Hey, I'm going to fly over on Mulberry Street, whatever. Do whatever you want. You know, have a nice day. Yep. Uh, and, and there was a way to do it. You know, So all right. of that um, that lead that we had. And the other thing you said, you were talking about the RPVs and the, you know, all the different mm-hmm. nomenclature. Right. People, drones are new. I haven't flying yep. drones since you know, before World War II, so not really. Yep. You know, yes, you couldn't buy them at, at Best Buy, but yes, they're, they're, they were right. out there. So um, to to see that twenty year lead just evaporate uh, right. really uh, chaps my hide because you know we, we what about our, our aerospace system and and uh, you know what are we going to do with that? So we we did talk about right. all of that and, and some of the integration efforts that you uh, participated in. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. like I said, that, I mean it's interesting. I was trying to remember where we knew each other from, but. Uh, same, you know, I was disappointed in AUDSI too, but you know, they they just had a lot of, you know, really I knew it was it was going downhill when they 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 were given the opportunity to write some of the language for the 2012 right. reauthorization bill, and I'm like, right. Right. they just handed you like a gift, you know, this is right. a gift you could do, you know, well, you know, okay, whatever. Anyway, so the other thing I want to talk about on a happy note is Oklahoma. Uh, advanced technology, how this became a reality. So first time I met folks from Oklahoma was at the Paris Air Show in either 2009 
or 2011. I, I, I can't remember the first time, but, you know, Oklahoma had a presence at the Paris Air Show, you know, and I'm like, oh, man, this is okay. This is a commitment. And, you know, other companies had that, and they're like, oh, you know, who comes by, whatever else. But the people that I met from Oklahoma were excited about aviation, excited mm-hmm. about uh, remotely piloted aircraft. Uh, I'm like, well, you know, I thought that was a one-off thing. And then so, again, I'm at the Paris Air Show the next day, and I have a booth. Hey, you know, you want to meet with people from Oklahoma? Let's talk about, you know, remotely piloted aircraft. And I think uh, that's why I met uh, Kelvin who later became mm-hmm. our, yeah. uh, 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 was he was the head of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes, he's actually yeah. and, a uh, science advisor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, um, you know, and uh, we almost had Mary Fallon on, on this program. It was close. I think she mm-hmm. heard my reputation. <laughs> and <my last> <laughs> said no. Um, but, you know, we did have a lot of people from Oklahoma on here. And the thing was is, you know, early on they were like, hey, uh, this is a transformative technology. This is you had the visionaries that saw it that said, you know what, we don't, we don't, we don't have to be in Silicon Valley to develop this technology. We could, we could be here, we could do that here. And uh, right. I will say there were some folks in the beginning, like I said, that were like, oh, it's a boondoggle and it'll never happen and blah blah blah. But that that you guys proved it. Yeah, we're the second uh, avia- uh, aviation aerospace is the second largest uh, industry in Oklahoma now, um, and of course we have incredible foundation for that. We have uh, obviously the world's largest military MRO at uh, Oklahoma City Air Logistics Center and the largest commercial MRO going on in Tulsa. Uh, and then we have, uh, if, if you go around the world or if you talk to a pilot, they all know about Oklahoma and Oklahoma City because of the Mike Monroney Aeronautical Center. They, you, you know. Um, Basically, Oklahoma City and Oklahoma touches the entire world when it comes to aviation, and we have a long history uh, going all back to you know Clyde Cessna and and uh, Wiley Post and others. And so, aviation is very big in Oklahoma, um, and it's kind of interesting because around 2008 is when I started looking around the states, and you know we need to think about how how to pull things together. And we had an interesting thing happen. Uh, I was having lunch one day with. Uh, an aerospace professor from the University of Oklahoma, and he mentioned that a couple of people were working, you know, here and there on on uh, unmanned aircraft at the time. And I was doing some stuff with unmanned aircraft at the time, had some contracts and stuff. So we decided to have a uh, sort of a summit. I thought, you know, it'd be neat to get everybody together and just figure out what everybody's doing. Maybe we could compare notes and stuff. And we went and made uh, a deal for a, uh, a small country club uh, at a, this little golf course, this little place, this venue. And I figured we would have 20 or 30 people show up. We put out announcements that come on up, have lunch. We're going to talk about what's going on in the state and compare notes. And we had so many people show up that we had no parking. People were parked up and down the highway leading into it. And, I mean, we were just – the place was absolutely packed, and we were stunned that there was that much interest, but also that there was a lot more going on than we were aware of. And that's when we went ahead and created the alliance and started doing things. And so it it was a good time in Oklahoma. Um, You know, we've – we did put in one of the original test site proposals. I was a co-capture manager on that. And it was really interesting because when we saw that, we were kind of scratching our heads on the test site. I, I was confused about how you have a test site without airspace accommodations and things. I've, I've been involved in military testing, but most of the test ranges and, you know, the military is restricted, especially use airspace. They control the ground risk. They have this very sterile environment you can test in. And I, I, I was scratching my head trying to figure out how would you replicate that in the national airspace system? How do you have that? So we did put in a proposal, but we sort of shot ourselves in the foot intentionally because when we were putting the proposal together, we were asking questions. 
And one of the questions that I posed back while we were writing proposal was, will we get any airspace accommodations? Will we have any accommodations or will we still be working with the same COA waiver exemption process? And it took a while to get the answer back, and the answer came back and said, no, you'll still need COA's exemptions and waivers. And, and I was, my thought was, why do we want to invest money in something? Because we can go get COA's and waivers and exemptions now. Why do we need to do that? And none of us felt comfortable going to our legislature and asking for millions of dollars for something to sustain. So we just – our proposal, we, we laid out what we would do, but we said it has to sustain itself because we just wouldn't put any state money in it. And, and I'm, I'm glad we didn't because I didn't want to have to go to our legislature after money. Um, but that was one of the issues. That's when I started having concerns about where we were going on integration. Coming from the military environment, mm-hmm. obviously I was already doing BV laws, but all of us were that were in the military environment. Uh, I was working on teams where we were doing mods to Ravens and Pumas and all kinds of kind of one-off type systems, and, and we were flying very long ranges on, on these military ranges, uh, you know, especially use airspace. But trying to reconcile that, how we were going to the, the uh, national airspace systems when I started having deep concerns on, on things. And the test site was my first concern about how is that even going to be possible? How, do you, how, do, how are we going to do that? And ultimately that's what's led to where I'm at today is how do we solve that? How do we create an environment that can give you as many benefits as you can get with a military test environment but still be in, in the national airspace system? It's not easy to do, and we'll never be able to replicate it entirely, but, but that's actually been part of my whole, you know, uh, struggle and also effort with the Choctaw Nation here. So, yeah, absolutely. Mm. I got off on a tangent. Sorry. But, but yeah, Oklahoma no, 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 has no, great, uh, uh, great schools. And, yeah. Yeah, well, no, that, I mean, this is, you know, so when people ask, because there, there have been other uh, IPPs and test sites and universities, mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and they just really haven't been able to make it work. Now, and right. I will say so, you know, uh, I've I've heard now totally unsolicited you know whatever I, I have been standing in uh, you know in lines at, at different venues and not even uh, you know let's say uh, a drone event or whatever and I have heard people talking about how great it is to to do business in Oklahoma in in this sector you know right. and I don't want to we have a very friendly because I. I yeah, that's what they said, and they're like, "Oh God, I wish California was like uh, was was like Oklahoma, man. That would be great. They're so welcoming and open, and want to hear ideas." I'm like, "Yeah, no, that's right. not California. Nobody wants to hear <laughs> anything." <laughs> and uh, and I agree with you too with the money thing. Go ahead, mm-hmm. you were going to make a point. Well, it's a very pro business state. It's a pro business state. It's it's emerging. Now we have the where I'm at in the state is. It's, it's been historically impoverished, and so we're seeing it coming out, out of poverty. The Choctaw Nation has totally transformed the area, um, and all the North Texas growth is coming this way. So we're actually you know, feeling the effects of all the uh, growth of the economy in North Texas uh, within the Choctaw Nation. But it is uh, – uh, you know, growing up in Oklahoma, my, both sides of my family go back multiple generations. I love the, the people. I love the culture. Uh, I especially love the Choctaw culture because in southeastern Oklahoma, the culture is the Choctaw culture. Um, it, that that it has dominated that for you know many many decades. Uh, but it's a great place to be. It's an exciting place to be uh, right now, especially with with in aviation. Um, we are yeah. we are very excited in this state. And, and you should be, and everyone should uh, take a, a victory lap on the deal because uh, you know, like I said, we have seen other you know. Uh, other efforts, and we don't even have to name them or whatever, but, you know, the states have, like, you know, thrown money at it, and they still couldn't get right. it off the pad. Right. And, and, I, right. and I think that some of the stuff that you discussed and how we want to do this and we don't – you know, nobody wants to go to the uh, 
<laughs> the government with a you know their handout. Uh, well, right, I exactly. shouldn't say nobody does. Everybody does it, but you know your older probability or success could be rather low because exactly. there's a lot of folks there. And uh, I also think that uh, you know you, it shows that you got some skin in the game. So now I want to talk about we're we're already you know uh, 45 minutes through, and what I want to talk about is um, you know this 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 drones are proposal thing that I have, and and you're one of the nominees or several other nominees, and I didn't discuss this with anyone before I nominated <laughs> them for this, uh, and there's a reason for and that. I, I can confirm uh, it because. I can confirm that you didn't speak to this because I actually landed one day on uh, landed at an airport and as I landed, my phone was blowing up on Twitter and I was like, "What? What's going on here?" And you had, you had mentioned your nominees and so uh, people were contacting me. Yes, I, uh, so I, I will attest you well, did not contact us beforehand. <laughs> so. No, and some people were uh, yeah they were like, "What? You know, who?" You know, uh, but the but the idea whether you know so we're we're uh, you know we're old timers on this thing and right. um, you know to me it's it's been like you know and in the, the last uh, the, in the first one we we talked to uh, Doug Marshall which I'm sure you got to know mm-hmm. Doug Marshall he's been oh, yeah. for yeah. dog years too mm-hmm. and um, you know we were talking about this and and you're one of these people too you've been around long enough you've been in the business you, you, and and you've talked about. Uh, <laughs> you know, glossed over some of the issues, but there's been some issues. And Doug had mentioned, you know, God, a, a guy could, he just wrote a book. He's like a guy could uh, write a book on all of the efforts that never really went anywhere. And right, I think there right. were reasons for that. And, you know, some stuff ran out of steam, yeah, changes in leadership, right. you know, funding, uh, government shutdown. God, we've been through it all. It's, it's like a, right. a soup to nuts. But, you know, I wanted uh, this whole drones are thing was with someone, uh, you know, who had the expertise, had the historical knowledge, was professional, political, um, knew what had been tried, knew what didn't work. Um, you know, didn't we, we don't want to repeat or cover the same real estate that we already have because, you know, this effort has right. been going on for 20, 30 years. And uh, right. that was that was one of the reasons I picked you. I, I knew that you knew it. You're an engineer. Um, you know, you're, you're also a nice guy. You're, you're kind of political. You can, you can deal with people. Uh, I think you have integrity and, uh, you're, you're one of those people that I would consider that you're not really out there. I, one of the issues that we've had of this effort is that there's been people out there who are, let's say, working for a, a DOD vendor or working for a certain right. company and they're not really looking out for all of us. They're kind of looking right. out to right. sell stuff. And, and I kind of understand right. that, but it's gotten us to, to this place where right. we're at. So, well, there's been, you know, there's with been an aversion to reality. There's been an aversion to reality too often. <laughs> and that's, and you know, that I, I remember there was a, a time when 2015 looked so far in the future. I thought surely we're going to solve a lot of these things. And then by the time 2015 rolled around is when realism really set in for me. That this is we're in for a long haul to do these things, and and uh, and you start it, you you develop a strong dislike for hype. Um, you just don't like the hype at all, and uh, you know the, the the exorbitant market figures. This is going to happen, and and everybody you know quitting the jobs and selling the farm, and and I'm going to go buy a drone, and I'm going to be an operator and do drone photography, and I'm going to be rich. You know, the, the, we just saw some craziness that just uh, a lot of us. Th- just it really you know made me feel uncomfortable 
And uh, there was a period when anybody that spoke reality or tried to add some reality, just they were not welcome in a lot of circles, you know. And I, I think really? We remember those times. Yeah. And so, you know, and looking at long term, the, the, the big thing about this is, is if you look in the whole, if you look at the whole history of what's going on, um, by the time the FAA was created in the late 50s, there was already 50 years of aviation and a, a weaker attempt at regulation. So the FAA inherited a ton of data, a ton of procedures and rules and regulations. They inherited it. And so aviation, what happened then was people don't like to die. So, you know, you know, naturally people kind of want to do things that they're not going to die, right? But what we ran into was that we needed some sort of coordination. That's, you know, the accident over the Grand Canyon is what really precipitated the creation of the FAA. That, that was, FAA was actually the legislation that created and empowered the FAA was uh, written by uh, an Oklahoma senator, Mike Monroney, uh, who, who uh, drafted it and created it. That's why the Mike Monroney Center is named after him. But, but really we had to have some sort of a coordinating – we had to be able to, to, to coordinate at a national level. And that's when we decided that at the national level we need this coordinating factor. But we, we messed up. Uh, and in hindsight, I think a lot of us probably wish a whole lot more thought had been done on the 2012 FA, you know, Modernization Reform Act uh, or Reform Modernization. I forgot what, what, what the, the actual acronym is. But it, it sort of just jumped out there and said, okay, all, all unmanned aircraft are going to be considered aircraft and et cetera, et cetera. And we just, you know, stu- put a stake in the ground. We're going to have some sort of integration by 2015. Didn't define what that was going to be. We're going to have test sites, but didn't define what that was going to be. And with regulatory agencies and in the regulatory environment, typically it's going to take the less, less risky approach. It's always going to follow the letter of the law, not necessarily the spirit of the law. And I'm not sure that there was ever a full explanation or or help in understanding of what really was the intent. I, I think we should have spent more time before we did that thinking about, you know, we have a century of uh, automobile regulations and laws and rules. We have a century of aviation regulations and laws and rules. We should stop and think about all of those rules, and almost all of them tend to center around a human. You know, a human's on board, a human's operating it on board. It it would have been better to say, is there a new class that we should consider versus starting from this point where we say we're going to bolt on a century of legacy stuff, and that's what we're going to start with. I think it would have been better to say maybe there's a new class that we can think of differently. And we should have spent more time looking at risk. We didn't do enough to even define risk. I've I've sat in countless meetings where we're talking about risk levels below 55 pounds. And and even if it's almost humorous, that was somewhat of an arbitrary number to begin with because it just happened to be one of the biggest aircraft sizes that was being flown at one of the hobby fields in the early 80s when the advisory circulator was put out. There's no science really behind or physics or engineering behind the 55 pounds. And so that's what's always bothered me is a lot of times we glob on to there's either a legacy reason we have a number or we'll arbitrarily grab numbers and then we're stuck with those. And then it becomes part of the regulatory system that can have really profound consequences. And so right. it's been difficult. It's been very difficult working through all this. Um, and, you know, as, as a transportation commissioner, I work on obviously highways and bridges and things like that. Last year, was uh, a very uh, bad year for highway fatalities. We had the biggest percentage increase in highway fatalities last year since World War II. Um, We were already kind of, the numbers were going up, unfortunately, because people are becoming more distracted. There's a lot of reasons why, but the pandemic seems to have really just made things worse. I think people are less patient. They're just more, more, more distracted. But on the ground, things are getting more dangerous. 
we have a situation on ground transportation where it's becoming unsustainable for the future. I look out on the future. We can't can, we can't accept this continuing increase in deaths and accidents and things. Whereas if you look at aviation, even though it's strict, we have this very tight regulatory burden. We're kind of almost in a golden age of safety in terms of air carriers, not necessarily GA, but we are with air carriers. When I got out of college yeah. as an aerospace engineer, it was just assumed we were going to have one or two major accidents a year. You just got, you were almost acclimated to it and it didn't seem like it was going to get better. And yet it has, we we're just not having air, air carrier accidents anymore. We've achieved a remarkable level of safety uh, within the national airspace system, but that regulatory environment is envisioned for a limited number of aircraft doing certain things. We still rely on humans talking one at a time to each other, um, all sorts of things that are still that safety infrastructure is built upon kind of that legacy idea. And so bringing a large number of entrants into the airspace system is difficult, very hard. Uh, a lot of the right. things that were envisioned to make things better, like ADSB, no one ever thought, well, what if we have, you know, a million drones? Well, that's why we don't, we can't do ADSB out on small drones. We have too many. It would just be noise at that point. There'd just be so much activity. And it, you know, so I, I think kind of globbing on and trying to immediately inherit that legacy, that whole century legacy of stuff, um, it might have, felt like a good idea at the beginning, but it, I think it set us behind long-term by not setting back and thinking more carefully about what, what it really was. And, and the fact that we call it unmanned um, is still that old thing where we're describing something of what it's missing, what it's not, rather than what it is. It's the mm. horseless carriage, you know, example. <laughs> rather than saying, maybe if we think about the words, what what is it? What is it that we have? Maybe it's different. Maybe it can be treated different. Maybe we could regulate it differently. But unfortunately, we didn't right. start out on that path. We started out on the legacy path. So anyway, sorry for the digression. Right, right. No, no, that's all good stuff. There's a lot to unpack there. But I agree with you. I, I like the our paths remotely piloted. I do not like uncrewed. And it's not because I don't want right. to include people because I think everyone should be included. It's just like, you know, this is – come on, man. They, your whole deal is crew resource management. Now you're saying it's uncrewed, right. and it's kind of like, uh, right. you know, you're believing these uh, idiots that, that call this stuff uh, autonomous. It's, it's pre-programmed, right. you know? So right. It's just exactly. another, you know, I, I would say a Band-Aid. But, you know, going back to, you know, the, the, the different categories of the test centers and, um, you know, and how that could created a capabilities gap, these were, these were all poor decisions. You know, so to be fair, you know, when the UAPO started, those guys were broken, like, you know, hey, this is the new technology office, and you guys have commercial space, you got drones and rockets, and, you know, and they're like, huh? You know, what? And you got four guys, now go get it done, you know. And uh, I think it was a it was a large task for, for them. They were like, wait, 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 what do we do? Right. I agree with you. On the, on the legacy stuff, that was a total mistake. There was a legacy of unmanned or remotely piloted aircraft that was just ignored because there had been people right. doing it, NASA, military, um, right. you know, Aeroson, Scan Eagle, Aerovironment. All of that stuff was flying around, and people were flying it around in, in uh, populated areas where it's a total no-go right. now. Um, but right. they were doing it, and they were doing it safely. The other uh, big mistake definitely was the reauth the 2012 FAA reauthorization. Where, I, I, I mean, people don't know this, but you know, they, they, <laughs> one of the organizations was approached and said, "Hey, you know, within reason, write what you want." You know, and I, I submitted the four under four pound exemption. Uh, people scoffed and laughed at it, mocked me. It's not enough uh, weight. 
yada, yada, yada. Um, I'm like, okay, so you want to wait another, you know, seven years? Okay, cool. You know, I'm, I'm good with that. Whatever you want to do. But um, and I'm not saying that that would have been the end all be all, but basically, so, you know, and when we kind of keep talking about 2015, for the benefit of the listeners that don't know, in the 2012 right. reauthorization, it said that you were supposed to, or not you, but the FAA was supposed to integrate drones into the NAS, full integration, by September 15th, 2015. ATO, not going to be ready, no data, no nothing. We're just not going to be ready, so we're not going to do it. Uh, right. which, which to me is, is, is was really disappointing. Um, I, I think you, know, you talk about the safety risk analysis and all the rest of that. You can do certain operations. I mean, do you believe you can do certain operations beyond visual line of sight in the NAS safely now? Oh, absolutely. Certain size there's, aircraft. There's a lot of yeah. There's a lot of uh, there's lots of ways you can do it now. But the problem is is uh, you, you get kind of a mentality of. Uh, do we want to create a situation where we flip the switch where it's ubiquitous everywhere or are there certain, you know, situations? Um, in reality, I see lots of places in the country that would be able to move toward BV loss because they either have infrastructure in place to handle it, they have things to handle it. We won't be able to flip a switch and do it overnight. But but I, I think right now there's lots of ways you can do it. In fact, one of the big issues we've had is kind of the, the shifting definition of BV loss. Um, it almost became mm-hmm. a joke, you know, the first BV loss operation. How many news release have we seen? The first drum BV loss operation, right? Um, and a lot of what people are doing calling BV loss is really what we used to call extended visual on a site. You know, we, we send out right. a network of observers or, you know, contact, radio contact with uh, the pick and stuff like that. And so I still slip up because I always want to say EV loss on a lot of these situations rather than BV loss. But I think we've sort of eliminated EV loss from our vocabulary. Um, I see, you know, there's, there's not too much I can uh, talk about about on this. There, there's some confidentiality, but I, I do think, yeah, I, I think there are situations now where we could do it, um, and I'm hoping we are moving toward that. I think we, there will be cases where we can do it safely and manageably. Uh, you know, the, the big thing we in all of this was, um, and this really goes back to the history of aviation, for decades, for decades, the military and DOD were the innovators. They were the vanguard of aviation technology. They have special use airspace. They can test it. They can bring it to high-level maturity. NASA kind of fit in there, a little bit of an overlap. And there was almost a continuity between the DOD and NASA and FAA. And so technology would pop up, kind of mature, DOD, find its way into civil aviation, move through NASA and FAA. That ended really and and what's one of the big things that's ended that was electric propulsion starting with small drones mm-hmm. then all of a sudden we saw china and other countries really getting ahead of us just because they had a stronger manufacturing base they were much they were growing their electronics manufacturing industry when ours was in decline and almost non-existence and so all of a sudden this technology starts to really advance quickly outside of the dod and it didn't follow that progression uh, like we normally do in the United States. And so we now have a situation where we're, we're really overdue for a sort of a revamping of how we think uh, about our federal approach to aviation because we have a large valley of death now where the, the yep. DOD may not be directly involved in it. NASA can go so far. FAA doesn't pick it up until it's pretty – you know. and so there's this area that it's just a valley of death. And globally, it's going to be to our detriment if we don't rethink how we manage 
kind of that innovation at the federal level, how we manage and enable, not that the federal government does innovation, but how we can create that environment and how they can manage it. And so I think we're long overdue for really a revamp of kind of the roles and kind of the boundaries and, and interactions between our, our DOD and military and our, our military research labs, NASA and FAA. I think we, we, we're long overdue to rethink that, given what we've seen with electric propulsion and drones. Yeah, no, uh, you do. And now we're going to run long, and the live part of this is going to drop off. And we, I, we got a few more minutes. We got to finish this up because there's a lot to unpack sure. there. And you're hitting you all of the right notes. I say the same thing. Okay, so you know, I, I, and I get the call all the time. Hey, we need this. Why aren't there any American manufacturers making this? And and this goes back to you. You talk about the beginning of the FAA, and we had a CAA that was put together by the Commerce Department. And in the old verbiage, there was, um, you know, we're going to promote aviation in the United States, and that was prior to the FAA. But at the time, and you probably remember this because you're, you know, an aviation guy or uh, aficionado, I mean, I, I always just think back to the Century Series of Jets. Okay, and right. all of the different manufacturers, North American, you know, uh, right. Northrop Grumman, Douglas. You know? I mean, t- right. in California, you know, you couldn't swing a cat and not hit a uh, an aerospace manufacturer uh, right. here in this state. So right. that, you, at the time when they created that, maybe, you know, you didn't need to promote aviation because there was just, you know, there was so much aviation, we didn't know what to do with ourselves and the innovation and all the rest right. of that. And I think... I think in the new reauthorization, and hopefully someone's listening, you know, we need to promote aerospace because it goes right. back to uh, the people calling from the military going, well, you know, I mean, we, we do it. We have it. And I even have manufacturers right. say, well, you know, we have, we have uh, capabilities or capacity and we can do this. And I said, yeah, you know, you're, you, uh, you got ITAR. It's not like China where you can sell it to everyone um, everywhere. You know, um, we also have the, you know, STEM issue and the compulsory labor and all the rest of these right. other issues that are hard to compete right. with. Um, but I, I believe that we, not only us, but the West and the Europeans were all kind of resting on the laurels of the 50s and 60s, and 70s. Oh, right. exactly. um, you know, even the, you know, the, the UK, they, they had a, uh, they had a, you know, really good aviation sector. And if you read reports, say, well, the unions came in and they couldn't be profitable right. Which I don't well, you probably do. remember the early days with ITAR, because the, the, ITAR really had that Cold War late 50s basically theme to right. it, you know, trying to prevent the proliferation of intercontinental ballistic missiles and stuff, but autopilots, things like cruise that. Cruise missiles. Yeah, cruise missiles, all those things. And so all of the U.S. manufacturers were just, they were, it wasn't some, they were restricted, but they, they also didn't have a clear path out. You know, you got into the, the circle of trying to, you know, what's, who's on first type thing, whereas, while they're sorting that out, the U.S. manufacturers are just trying to survive and sort that out. The, the Chinese companies have already developed several generations, and so they're already way ahead of, of anybody in the United States by the time we were sorting out ITAR. Um, you know, I, uh, those types of things actually killed our commercial space, commercial satellite industry, because we, we were very strict on it early on, and now we have a relatively small share. At one point, I think it's 25% of the world market. And, and we don't always think long term how those things can impact, you know, our, our commerce and industry. But, yeah, I, I dealt with that. It was very frustrating. Simple autopilot and, you know, uh, were, were covered under that. So. 
well, even uh, Fred Marks over at SME Direct, they, you know, they had that co-pilot thing, and it was thermopiles and a little thing yep. you'd put on yep. top of your uh, RC. But, oh, no, they got a visit from the government. Yep. You're selling control. <laughs> it's like they're little thermopiles. You know? yep. oh, anyway, yeah. and, and the, well, the other beauty of ITAR is it could be retroactive. You know, Somebody new could come right, in and go, right. hey, man, what's going on over here? And you're like, what? Right. You got to go get all that technology, which is hard oh, to yeah. do. Yep. So uh, I, I think were, it, you know, I stuff. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. No, I was right. just going to say the ITAR thing. Uh, you, you know, even with the military, they say, okay, well, we realize you can't sell us to us at this price point. Look, you know, DJI is probably sells as many drones in one day as you'd buy from us in a year. You know, and uh, when you have those types of margins, you just can't. The other thing is, is uh, really, I mean, I think people underestimate the Chinese and people think I'm anti-Chinese. I'm not really anti-Chinese. If I was Chinese, I'd be, uh, you know, doing the pom-poms and the whole deal because I think they're doing what they <laughs> should be doing. But uh, for us, I mean, I, I went over there to Shenzhen. They got an innovation zone, man. I mean, what do you, what right. do you want? You know, you talk to somebody from right. the factory and they will prototype it for you in four to six weeks, you know, for – relatively a small amount of money, which you can't do here. So that's one of the issues. But now, yeah, that freedom, I did want to, freedom talk. to innovate oh, is what we've lost here. That, that worries me. We, we need that. You know, the Wright brothers didn't have to certify an airplane or anything, you know, but we, we need that, that ability to have sandboxes and to innovate. We, we desperately need that. We've discouraged that and stifled that far too long in the United States, I believe. Well, and I, and, I, and I do think, you know, and I'm going to say this because, uh, you know, I don't want to, you know, uh, get anyone into trouble. But I, I really believe even early on, you know, I was on that small UAS arc and really not a lot or, or not a lot of uh, the, the, the ALPA people, the AOPA people and the HAI people really had way more pull than the drone industry had. And, uh, you know, uh, the guy from AOPA, they were very unhappy about ADSB. They really didn't want ADSB. And I think that they used the drones as a little bit of a wedge or cudgel or whatever. And they said, look, we have to have an equivalent level of safety with GA at least or forget it, you know. And, and, I, and, and to be fair, those guys were they were thinking scan eagle. They weren't. They weren't right. thinking, you know, phantoms. And I understand that. Right. You know, you're in a 172 flying around, and you have a, a scan eagle all up in your grill. You know, 55 pounds and 100 miles an hour. Yeah, it, that's problematic. You know, um, right. But right. I, I think it was knee jerk. And now we're at a point where I really uh, believe that you know, GA. Well, you, you did allude to that a little bit. Is starting to have, um, let's say, safety issues. And there's probably a lot of things that are uh, contributing to that, you know. However, we, we've seen that uh, the drones are actually, these small ones, you know, are, are pretty safe because we really haven't right. had any. Uh, and I'm not going to say we're not going to have fatalities because you just can't, right. you know, that's not how the world works. But I think uh, they need your card over and where this capabilities gap that I'm talking about is right now, if we just even look at Ukraine. You have countries, small countries like Turkey, supplying this this technology. Right. This is not just the realm of, let's say, um, superpowers anymore. Uh, the right. Iranians, uh, the Chinese. Uh, I was mocked in 2008 and 9, and you were probably mocked too. But I was mocked, and I'm like, hey man, there's going to be a thousand dollar Chinese UAV. Oh, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you know? Yep. And I'm like, I remember oh, those days. 
but uh, it did come about. So anyway, so to wrap this deal up, you know, thinking through the, the, the prism of the drones are and this person, and, and maybe, and I didn't elaborate on that part, this, this person would be the person that would, would kind of interface between the community and the regulator and be able to say, hey, you know, here's what's, what we think is going on. Anyway, so in, through that lens, um, how do we reinvigorate this process? How, how do we hit that 2015 goal of full NAS integration? Do you have any ideas? I, I, I think we uh, you sometimes get to step back just a little bit, you know, and, 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 and assess the situation. Uh, I can tell you how we're doing things in Oklahoma. We see so much commonality on the challenges that ground transportation is going to have in the future and, and, and some of the roadblocks that we have in aviation that we went ahead and combined them under an advisory council of the state. So we have a, just an advanced mobility advisory council and it's kind of equally represented aviation ground because we're realizing that they're not as separate a lot of times as we think. Yeah, they are separate regulatory regimes, but some of the challenges, some of the things about social acceptance and things are, are similar. I, I think we almost have to step back just a little bit. Um, the, the way I look at it is, is, is a transportation commissioner. If I just totally forget, that I'm, you know, involved in aviation. When I look at the highways and, and how much it's costing to build roadways and just sustain roadways, you know, our national highway system immediately started decaying and requiring maintenance when we first built it. Um, it's mm. not sustainable. If, if you look at ground transportation, ground tra transportation is not sustainable the growth we have. We just can't keep doing that. We we can't go back for multi-trillion-dollar infrastructure you know, grabs uh, a federal debt and keep doing this. Um, I think the problem we have, though, with aviation is we've never had the equivalent moment that we had with ground transportation in terms of democratization. Uh, you know, within 30, 40 years after the first automobile started popping up, we had Henry Ford and mass production, and we had a, a true democratization moment. Everyone can buy a Ford car, it's easy to operate, stuff like that. We never have had a democratization moment in aviation. Uh, aviation is still, you gotta have you know, some means or it's still a select few that really can pilot or do things. Um, we, I think we did have a democratization maybe in terms of access to air carriers, but we've never had the true democratization moment. I think we're gonna have to step back and rethink things. I, I don't see ground transportation as sustainable, especially in rural areas. We'll never be able to get our highways up to the level that we need them to be, there's just not enough money. But people are, are going to demand better safety. They're going to demand convenience. And that's, as an aerospace engineer, I'm really intrigued with electric propulsion. Not, there are a lot of problems. We still have battery capacities and range and things like that. But the electric propulsion is so neat because it simplifies design. It can improve reliability. You move things out of a mechanical uh, kind of regime of reliability, you move it more into an electrical system regime of reliability. And that's remarkable in terms of what you can do with that. And so I, I very, I, I love, I have a car that's electric. Uh, it's a plug-in hybrid, but I love the electric mode. I absolutely love it. Not that I'm, I mean, that I'm doing it for the environment or anything like that, but I, I, I'm doing it because I love the technology. And I think it's going to offer a lot of possibility. And that's why I'm excited about electric aviation. I think we're going to be able to start to solve a lot of these things, but we're going to open up new modes that have previously not been that possible. But in terms of what, what's going to have, to have to do, we're going to have to just think outside of the box. I do think we need someone at the DOT level. We need a czar at the DOT level that should advance transportation that says, you know, when, when is it realistic to think in terms of the legacy? When do we just need to start from scratch and start with a blank sheet and say, Maybe this requires a new way to think about the rules. But if you think of a driverless automobile, I hate to use driverless because we're still describing the negative. If you think about it, why does that vehicle have to subscribe to normal laws? 
Most of those laws are because of human limitations. We can tell the driverless mm-hmm. automobile, always stay in this lane under these circumstances. We could create a separate set of laws that always makes it safer than the human, rather than saying, well, you've got to be able to read the speed limit signs. You've got to be able to do this. And, you know, rather than making it try to mimic a human, we can say, do what a machine does best, which is being consistent, predictable, programmable, all those things. Let's, let's take those strengths create a set of rules that leverages that, makes it safe. And I think we need to think about all transportation that way. How can, if we did start with a clean sheet of paper and we said, you know, maybe there's a new class of technology. Maybe it's not like we've always thought. What would it look like? It might simplify things. Now, we're pretty far down the path of trying to fold in and always bolt on with our old regulatory system. So we're pretty, unfortunately, I think we're, we're past that, that opportunity or ability. But I think it would be good to step back. We've never fully assessed risk, and you talk about the lack of accidents. Uh, I remember in 2015 in, in the fall being in meetings in Washington, D.C., and there was this feeling that there was going to be an apocalypse on Christmas morning of 2015, that everyone's going yep. to get a drone, it's going to go in the air, the airliner's going to fall out of the air, the grid was going to go down, people were going to eat each other, and it just society was going to collapse by, by the afternoon of Christmas Day. You know? And reality, what happened was a whole lot of drones ended up on tops of people's roofs, turned upside down in the gutters, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. nothing bad happened. So the bad didn't happen. There are bad things that can happen. Yeah, you can ingest into a jet engine. If you're in the right place and all that, you can ingest it. But the reality is, is we need to sit back and think about the risk, and not the 1950s way where we look at just kinetic energy only, but, but, but look at it. What, what are we dealing with? We're mostly dealing with a lot of times frangible systems that behave different dynamically, all of this. We need to rethink mm-hmm. that and, and accurately, systematically, and quantifiably assess risk. And then when we understand and can assess risk, then we can start to say, what does our regulatory system need to do to adapt to that risk? Because our regulatory system is really a social contract. It's basically society saying there's something there we like, but there's also something we worry about. So it's the contract that says we're going to get the benefits, but we're going to manage it so we we can manage those things we don't like. If we don't fully understand the risks, it's difficult to really come up with a realistic regulatory system. You know, we we either going to overdo it or, and, and historically it's going to look back and look very inconsistent. Well, you're, 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 you know, you're hitting uh, the, the deals again where, we, you know, we're using science, risk mitigation, risk assessment. Right. I mean, you, you know, you can sit down and, and quantify the risk. Um, and that's one, been one of the deals that just, uh, you know, really, I mean, I'm not an engineer or a scientist, you know, but I, I understand how the process works. I understand how you, uh, you, you can quantify things. Um, and that has been one of the issues in this, you know, even during the arc, the bins and all the rest. I know you talked about the 55 pounds, totally arbitrary. It worked right. because scan eagle right. fit in the box. Um, all of these existing DOD products fit in the box, which was mistake number one. Mistake number two, uh, I think, was was going after the, the hobbyists, although they kind of, uh, you know, shot themselves in the foot. And then that 250 grams, man. That uh, the, the the registration task force, you know, people. Oh well, you know, just we had to establish. And I'm like, look, you just you just opened Pandora's box right there. Right. No, no, they tell us it's going to be no. You just established the baseline for uh, risk is what you did at right. 250 grams. I don't care what they told you. I don't care what you think. I don't care how you feel. That's what you did. Right. And that's an arbitrarily low number, and I would have never went along with that. Um, that's another thing is I think some some folks they just don't 
they don't understand. It's the same thing, you know, it's like, look, man, uh, you, you, MITER came in and, and had this report, and it was on, you know, basically kinetic energy from shrapnel from explosions. And, and I tried to explain to the people at DJI and 3D Robotics at all that, is, is that what you guys are making over there? You're making shrapnel? You're making, you know, projectiles from explosions? Is that what you're cutting? Well, you know, no. Well, what it was is you, you hadn't heard of this concept called uh, material density, which I'm sure you've heard right. of since you're an engineer. And I said the same. I go, look, I could put 250 grams worth of packing peanuts, you know, in a bag. Uh, I'd have to, you know, tape that to the front of my Prius and get up to speed. You know, and if you want to be the test subject, I'll hit you with it, and we'll see what the damage is. You know, absolutely. And it, well, we have the concept yeah, of frangibility. Totally you have the concept, yeah. The, basically, the, you know, especially things are designed, and if that weight's distributed, it's typically going to be absorbed in different ways. It's not going to penetrate like a point load, you know. Where we're not going to, you know, right. basically a lot of times kinetic energy analysis, you treat it like it's a bullet, you know, and a bullet doesn't weigh very much, but traveling at speed, you know, can do things. But there's, there's a big difference between a 55-pound drone flying at 100 miles per hour and a one-pound drone flying at 100 miles per hour. And, you know, if you think about it, uh, all somebody's got to do is see a scan eagle flying at 100 miles per hour and then think, do we, should we treat that the same as we treat this little quad, you know, rotor that's, you know, a pound or something? And that's why I, I think the military was closer on. You know, they had the, the different uh, the risk categories early on. Of course, either the 4.4 pounds are just because it's two kilograms. It was the international type thing. But there is that natural. Uh, and Raven. You know, there's a, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, Raven, exactly. Raven that, was 4.4. And, yeah, and, and exactly. you know, there's probably a break point between uh, – there's probably about a two-and-a-half pound. I think, you know, if you look at safety, probably somewhere around two-and-a-half pounds is when you start to see maybe a breakover in different levels of risk if it's going to impact something. But there are definitely different degrees in there of, of risk. And, that, you know, that, that bothered me when we said zero to 55 pounds, we're going to treat the same that forces you to always look in the lens of it's going to be 55 pounds. And right. so you're going to always have right. to the worst case. And it's limiting. It really well, is. Well, and even the way you put that, it's like I even said that when the rule came out. And, and as uh, Gene had alluded early on, that was kind of a gift. But, look, I, wasn't, I, I personally wasn't comfortable with no practical test for a 55-pound right. aircraft that flew at 100 miles an hour. Right. I go, you know. If I have the means to go buy one, and there's lots of stupid rich people, and there's stupid, you know, poor right. people, but if I go ahead and I buy that, uh, you could create a lot of damage, you know. But whatever the case, right. you guys know better than me. Uh, I'm just uh, some guy out here. But anyway, um, those, those are some of the – I don't think that we really used uh, science the way it should have been, uh, these arbitrary numbers. The, the other issue uh, with the advocacy is there was there's, – there's no battle plan. You know, right. it's willy nilly. It's grasping at straws. It's it's like these defensive positions. And I always say, you know, I kind of look tiger that it used to be. But man, they they used to have juice. You know, they they get the administrator right. on the phone after hours and all the rest of. That. But the the model that those guys had is they're not giving up an inch without getting something. Right. You know, right. uh, which right. is you know effective advocacy, right? So you know, even this RID thing, which I'm not a fan of because I think it's a Fourth Amendment issues, but you know that's another show. But it's like, okay, you you, you want to put this? Okay, so you're going to put this on here, and then we're going to be beyond visual line of sight. Is that what you're telling me? Oh, oh, okay. Now we can talk. You know, now there's a there's a, a tangible benefit to this besides, right. uh, you know, some of the some of the other stuff that you're talking about, or it's a gateway too, which we all anybody with half a brain knows. 
that the issues for full NAS integration uh, are <laughs> it's uh, right. that's a whole other show. So you know whatever, right. but uh, you know hey, give me something for that, or even the registration. All of this stuff I think is. Uh, like low hanging fruit, you know, we've moved on to the STEM education thing, which is not really in the wheelhouse of the uh, FAA, as far as I'm concerned. Let's, and the inclusivity thing, I want inclusivity of the whole NAS. Look, you know, you open the whole NAS up to everyone, that's going to open it up to, you know, women and women of color and, and, you know, all kinds of people, not just me, you know, everybody. And that's what I said. Let's, there's an interesting case there that, if you think about it, we're moving more toward where your cognitive skills are more important than your physical skills. If you were a pilot uh, in 1930, you had to be pretty close to an athlete or, or action. You had to be physically fit because you were, you know, physically controlling the aircraft. Uh, now you don't. You know, it doesn't take strength. It doesn't take that. But, you know, 20 years ago, if you were going to be a tower inspector, suppose you were going to go around and inspect, you know, cell towers or antennas and things like that, you had to be physically fit. You were like a lineman, right? You are going to be climbing and doing that. You can now be, have limited mobility. You can be confined to a wheelchair and be a tower inspector now under Part 107. And that's what's neat. I, I think we need to start thinking about how is exactly like you said, how are we going to be able to open up new opportunities for people that previously were excluded, uh, that previously had no ability to get, no uh, opportunity to get into those fields now they can. And I think if we start to change the way we think about, you know, we have that century that, you know, the, the pilot doesn't be physically fit, all these medicals, all this stuff like that. We're actually going to be dealing more and more, even pilots of large aircraft are going to be dealing with the, the cognitive load more than any sort of a physical mm-hmm. demand. Mm-hmm. And so I think we have to rethink it that way. And, and uh, whether we like it or not, Physi- our physiology is kind of changing. We have so many distractions. We're not good at focusing on a single thing anymore. I think we're, we're good at kind of supervising things, but direct <laughs> control of things is not that great. Uh, all you got to do is, you know, our highway death numbers or fatality numbers shows that. I think we're going to have to realize that we're going to have to rely on technology a little bit because as humans, we're getting worse at it. But do it in mm-hmm. a way that we leverage it to our benefit. And that that's going to have to be in aviation too. Let's leverage it to our benefit and start to work toward a democratization moment. What would be neat is if we can actually truly open up aviation where we don't have to continue to build these super expensive, dangerous highways. If we could start to think about different modes of transportation in the future, that is what I get really passionate about because I see it as a lot less expensive way to achieve what we want to achieve, which is quality of life, mobility, all of these things, and a way that's actually better for all of us. So we have to start yeah. kind of Get the, get the blinders off and think long term and, and try to shed as much of the legacy. There's a lot of lessons. We, we definitely want to take the lessons we've learned. A lot of people have given their lives in aviation, you know, to advance us to where right. we are. And we, we want to honor that to, as much as we can. But it would be to our disadvantage and to their uh, disrespect if we don't build on that and make things safer and better for everybody. Well, you know, and you, and you said this earlier, you know, uh, that this technology and the electric propulsion really opened it up to a lot of people and how, you know, legacy aviation, there were a lot of barriers to entry and mainly cost and all the rest of that. And, and even anybody that's flown a 172, you know, you, you need some uh, strength to do that. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you already said it, you know, it's already inclusive. This is, this is uh, something for people that didn't think they could, you know, enjoy, uh, you, you know, flight. And, of course, right. you're staying on the ground. But, yeah, hey, you know, uh, and this is another thing. that uh, The use case thing, man, that, ha- that horse has been, 
it's dead and it's still getting whipped. We already right. have, there, there are a zillion use cases. It already works. I don't think we have to go and look at them anymore. It, yeah. It's really how do we facilitate this. And, and the other thing, you know, even, even the people, this does, it gives people that have disabilities uh, a, a way into fields that they couldn't do before. But it also pre- prevents, you know, people from getting hurt like this lineman thing that you talk about, these guys that climb these radio towers, linemen, uh, you know, I just, it's crazy that, that people are willing to put themselves at, at risk like that so we can turn on a light, you know, or, right. or use a cell phone or whatever, you know, it's, it's boggles right. my mind. Well, we've actually seen that within the Choctaw Nation. In fact, Secretary Chow talked about the one case. It was a very simple case because we all, we all remember the days of farm drones and, and which didn't end well because a lot of farmers paid a lot of money for fuzzy pictures and didn't give them actionable data or anything. But, but we actually found we've, we're finding real-world applications that are improving ag. The simplest was just flying 107 for a pecan grove. If you own a pecan grove and you're trying to manage it, it's amazing how powerful a, a flying with VLOS with a small drone is because you can see the tops of the trees. You'll know when you need to apply treatment or pesticide or things like that. And you can also begin to estimate your yield. And so one of the most impactful things was just going out and working with people that own pecan groves and manage them the 107 operations. It wasn't super sexy or exotic or anything, but it did have an impact. And there's lots of things like that we're finding out. Um, and mm-hmm. working with farmers, there are, there are some very practical things out there to do uh, that, that people are working with. Our, our test range actually is also a, a very large functioning ranch. At any point in time, we have several thousand head of cattle. We have a bison herd on our range, and many times the ranch hands will come get us and say, you know, we've lost a couple of bulls. Can you find them for us? Or, or they, they will actually go support them, uh, you know, and take a break from what we're doing and actually go fly some different missions. So there's very practical things out there. I, I think what happened is when 107 came out, we had to burn through the hype. And so the industry kind of had the right size staying within the VLOS. So we, we saw right sizing. A lot of companies went out of business. We saw the industry shrink a little bit, but that was a right sizing because of the, the VLOS applications and what's practical and real. And we're starting to see a lot more realism pop up now. And um, yeah. you know, early on, people would have basically they, what they were doing was drone photography and they fail to look at the, the business plan of a wedding photographer. You know, if you're going to, you can always boil things down to a simple business plan. They wanted to get super rich, but then when you look at their underlying, you know, uh, business plan, they're going to do real estate photography or wedding photography. So you have to look at historically, what are those types of markets paid? You know, what does that business look like? And so I, I think we had to see the hype burn off and reality set in, but we're also seeing very innovative things that people hadn't even thought about. And that's what's been really to be part of the IPP and beyond is actually seeing things that, you know, nobody thought about it. It's simple, but it's now possible. You know, 15 years ago, it wasn't possible, but it has a real immediate benefit. It's kind of the fun part of what we get to do. Yeah, and that, uh, you know, the field part is the fun part. All right, well, I think yeah. I'm going to – there's a lot of good stuff here, and, uh, you know, I, I appreciate you coming on and, uh, you know, imparting your empirical knowledge on us. And I, I hope that uh, people get, you know, can, can glean from this uh, what works and what kind of doesn't work. And, uh, you know, I don't know. Like I said, I hope somebody's listening. I don't know that, you know – like I said, I never have asked anybody if they wanted to be nominated. I think if, if like, like you said, somebody uh, this position was created at, at DOT, and if somebody actually had, you know, a little bit of, uh, you know, power and, and and leeway and could do some stuff, I, I think it's a, a positive 
position. And, uh, you know, we'll have to see what happens. I, I, I got to get out there to Oklahoma. Like I said, I'm, uh, yes. I really, you guys are a success story and I should be really proud of that. Um, you know, the, my hat's off to you guys on that one. And uh, I look forward to talking to you in the future and, and seeing what's going on, James. Sure. You bet. Well, come out during storm season. We'll chase tornadoes together. You can come chase tornadoes with us if you want. Sounds <laughs> <laughs> good. The tornadoes. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like fun. I'll, I'll be right out. Um, all right. Well, hey, thanks again <laughs> for coming on. And uh, until you next bet. time. All right. Bye-bye. Stay safe, everyone. Take care.